Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Driving Force podcast. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned endurance athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest, Ralph Vitello, is a true Renaissance man. He's a Marine and Vietnam War veteran, a singer and songwriter that's performed in front of crowds as large as 25,000 and opened for bands such as The Police and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. A writer whose blog called Ralph's Pick of the Week has around 300,000 readers every week from around the world, an avid surfer, filmmaker, and consummate volunteer, and of course, a husband and father. One of my favorite interviews so far, Ralph shares some crazy life stories, including an absolutely wild run-in with Colombian drug lord, Pablo Escobar, when his band was touring in South America. And so, without further ado, my interview with Ralph Fatello. Ralph, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, have you been surfing at all recently? Uh, I was. I actually surfed in uh, California on the uh, end of January and February. So, Where'd you yeah. go? We went to Santa Barbara and then up north to Cayucas, and uh, me, my son Max, and uh, Dave Cropper mm-hmm. from Cinnamon Rainbows. It was great. We had a great trip, surfing off the boats, taking these little boats and going up the coast, making these little, you know, strikes what you can't get to by vehicle, motor vehicle. It's pretty cool. How long were you, How long were you there for? Not long, just uh, seven days, but we packed a lot in in seven days, so it was cool. Yeah. Do you, uh, so do you not surfer in New Hampshire during the winter? I stopped surfing in the winter in 2016. I just, it just started to get, the older you get, the colder you get. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm done with it, you know. That miserable feeling of getting into a, a wetsuit in the you know, dead of winter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it would be far-fetched to say that you're a man of many talents um, and skills. I mean, marine, surfer, writer, photographer, musician, volunteer. I mean, the list goes on and on for you. Yeah. Um, of all your many talents and interests, which one were you drawn to first? Uh, you know, it's hard to pinpoint where it all started from, but, you know, because I started drawing when I was real young, and I was always around music, so music was always there, you know. My dad was a musician, so, but I always had a, I, I can remember being a young child and drawing dinosaurs on the, um, we lived in a triple-decker in the city, and my mom would set up a little easel, and I'd be out there drawing dinosaurs. So I was, like, really young, like five years old, something like that. So, And once I developed a talent, you know, for it, I just stuck with it, you know. And then the music was always there, so. Yeah. Were you always, um, so it sounds like you were always playing music and drawing and doing I wasn't always, pl- I, I played music, uh, you know, it was it was a gradual transitioning from when I was you know younger and hearing music, and then you know getting older and uh, to 
hear like uh, like the ventures in like the early 60s are hearing like Elvis Presley in the 50s and uh, Ricky Nelson on the, my little transistor radio, you know, and just hearing songs. And then my dad was constantly playing music, you know, and he played, he was a horn player. So there was music constantly. And then, you know, in the 50s with rock and roll and the kind of surf bands, uh, um, the ventures, you know, I was into listening to all that stuff and, you know, and then I was always drawing. So I was continuously drawing and, you know, being saturated with music in the environment that I grew up in. So, um, you know, I didn't really stop. I played, um, I, because of my father being a horn player, I joined the, um, the drum and bugle corps. So I ended up being a horn player in the drum and bugle corps. And, uh, you know, I did that for eight years, learned how to play the horn and, you know, march is basically a marching band that we traveled around New England and competed and it was really cool. And when you say the, the horn, what instrument is that exactly? My dad was like a trumpet player. Trumpet, okay. So the drum and bugle corps, I was, uh, they had bugles with a single valve. And so I was, uh, a, a second soprano and then made it up to top soprano so I could play, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was it wasn't something I was gonna. Con- I d- knew I wasn't gonna be a horn player, but I was I was a little kid marching around learning how to play the, excuse me, learning how to play the bugle, and marching around. So, you know, it was there, but it wasn't until I heard, like the Ventures, the guitar. Yeah, and that like caught my ear, and I really wanted to be a guitar player from that. You know, hearing the Ventures play like Pipeline and Wipeout and stuff like that. And it was just everything, everything kind of came together in the early 60s for me, you know. Yeah. So it sounds like um, your parents were always very supportive, supportive of your kind of your your art and your kind of your music interests because it, yeah. it was just such a big part of your family. Yeah. You know, I discovered uh, surfing in uh, 1963. And I was already, you know, so I discovered surfing and the ventures in 63. It was my dad. I, we, I was, I remember it like it was yesterday. My brother and I were practicing. We were going to be stuntmen in Hollywood. That was our, <laughs> that was our, our little goals as young, young boys. We should be stuntmen because we were always watching war movies, you know. Mm-hmm. We should be stuntmen in Hollywood. So we were out back, you know, practicing, getting blown up and practicing, you know, <laughs> just doing stuff that stuntmen would do. And my dad said, I remember him saying, Ralphie, check this. Look at this. And I ran into the house and we had this little black and white TV. And there was these guys surfing. I'm like, what, what's that? He goes, they're surfing. I'm like, surfing. And I was just, I remember just connecting immediately to seeing it and going, where's that? You know, where is that? You know, oh, it's probably in California or Hawaii. I'm like, we got to move there. We got to go there. And I was just like mesmerized by it, just watching this. And they had the music in the background. It was black and white. I have no idea what the show was, but it was 1963. And it just freaked me out to the point where I wanted, like, it would hound my parents to want to move to Hawaii or California. And then February of 1964, the Beatles came out. 
And so that was it for me. You know, I was just like, okay, forget about moving to Hawaii. I need a guitar, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it all came together and like, and I caught my first wave in 19, the summer of 64. Got my first guitar in 64 and caught my first wave in 64. So it was a turning point in my Mm -hmm. life. And I remember looking at my brother Johnny when we were watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, February 9th, 1964. And I said to him, this is what we're going to do. Forget the stuntman. We could get hurt doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Were were the Beatles a big inspiration um, for you musically and for the bands that you were a part of? Oh, yeah. Without question. No, No doubt about it. The Beatles were the biggest influence on me and millions of other musicians. They changed the world. I mean, they literally changed the world and as music, as far as how music developed. When the Beatles hit the stage on Ed Sullivan, February 9th, 1964, it just changed everything. It was unbelievable. It still is. Mm-hmm. And you think about the Beatles were around from 63 to 69. Six years. And they, what they did in six years, if you listen to the Meet the Beatles to the end, Abbey Road, their last album, it is phenomenal what they were able to do. And I was just caught up like everyone else. Every, most rock stars in the 60s and the 70s will attribute their, you know, their whole gig to the Beatles. I mean, their whole reason for being to the Beatles. I mean, I don't know how you could not. They were influenced, everyone was influenced by it. Mm-hmm. It just turned the world upside down. That's all I listen to today <laughs> on Sirius Radio. I still listen to it because there's always something new I'm learning about, you know, because the, you know, the Sirius Radio, the Beatles channel, there's always something new. Like I, you know, finding out that Paul McCartney wrote When I'm 64 when he was 16 years old. Wow. 16. He wrote when I'm, when I'm 64. I'm like, what? You know, who does that? <laughs> Anyways, I'll, yeah, so, yeah, the Beatles were a ma- major influence on my life. Mm-hmm. Major. Definitely, would you say, like, kind of the biggest out of all, I guess, the bands of that era in terms of your, like, influence? Like, are there any others that kind of stick out for you? Any other bands of yeah. that era? I mean, I kind of, there was the whole, it was called the British Invasion in the 60s. And so the whole, you know, the Stones came out, the Kinks, the Who, everybody, you know. So, yeah, everyone had their own little niche going on. But it was because of the Beatles. The Beatles kicked open the door and everybody just rushed in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was into, uh, you know, my two main influences musically are the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix. So, mm-hmm. you know, as a guitar player, you know, I developed my guitar playing. And once once I heard Hendrix... Because he took the guitar to a whole nother yeah. level. It was like we were hearing all this pop music, and then Jimi Hendrix popped onto this, came onto the scene. It was like, what? You know? So, and he had a short career. I mean, he was, it was, he wasn't around very long, you know? And, uh, what he did, so between the Beatles and, and Hendrix, that was, you know, they basically, you know, imprinted Onto my soul, what I was going to do musically, you know. Yeah, was uh, so is your main role in the bands that you've been in the 
like lead guitar, would you say? Uh, well, my brother Johnny and I were always, um, you know, always, you know, playing the guitar back and forth. You know, it was, you know, we both kind of, it's funny because I started, because I was, I'm, I'm three years older than him. And I started to, you know, I got the first guitar. I got my first electric guitar. And I used to, you know, the brotherly thing. It's like, don't you touch my guitar when I'm not around. Because I would set the guitar down a certain way and leave the strap and put the pick a certain way. I knew what he'd be messing with it. If I got back and saw it was moved, you know. Uh, and so we weren't, we didn't start playing together until after I was done uh, in the Marine Corps, you know. But prior to that, we it was just me, you know, and then, you know, getting in, starting bands and, but it wasn't until I came back when, you know, he had been playing the whole time and it all just came together. So. What was the name of the first band that you were part of? Uh, the first band that I played in was called Johnny and the Diamonds. Uh, it was just in like a neighborhood band. Me and my friend Kevin had these uh, silver tone guitars that we got from Sears and Roebuck. And Ben Russell up the street, he got a bass guitar, and John Tesoros got a set of drums, and we called ourselves Johnny and the Diamonds, and you know, we just played like parties, you know, mm-hmm. did like venture songs, Beatles songs, and you know, just it was the beginning of something that would eventually, you know, you know, go on to do you know bigger and greater things in the music world, but that was the first. Yeah, and um, you've, uh, I guess, uh, as your music career uh, progressed, you've performed some pretty large crowds, right? Oh, yeah. What were some of the, I guess, biggest crowds that you performed in front of? 25,000 people. Wow. At the Meadowlands. Uh, That was a big one. Then there was a 10,000, 10,000, this, we... My band toured, we toured through Latin America in 1983, and there was a, um, an outside amphitheater like carved out of a mountain, and we played there. It was like 10,000 people, but 25,000 people at the Meadowlands. We opened for Amazon Lake in Palma. That was pretty, uh, eye opening. Yeah. Yeah. What was, what was that experience like for you? The thing about being an opening act is you're, at the mercy of of being an opening act and you, no one's there to see you so <laughs> you're basically you've got to try to win them over yeah and that's it, it's always been a difficult you know undertaking to get out there and like they're not there to see you Ralph <laughs> they're there to see Emerson Lake and Palmer you know they're there to see this band or that band you know if you're the opening act when you're a headliner you've already got that covered but as an opening act you got to get out there and try to win them over so and can you tell as an artist when you're like killing it or in the zone on a particular song at a show oh yeah it's like anything you know it's like sports or any fighting you know you know when you're in the zone you know when things are going your way and same thing with music when you're when you hit a, a certain groove or a Everybody's connected, and you get into this like trance type thing. 
and the sound is there and the vibe is there in the, in the audience. When those combinations all come together, it's like magic, you know, mm-hmm. creating music, especially if it's your own original music, you know. So there's been many times when you're in, get into that, you know, and it's like this almost, you know, you know, invisible connection that the musicians all feel. That happens a lot, you know. And there's also the other end of that, you know, <laughs> when things are not going right. <laughs> yeah. So thank God there were only a few of those along the way. Yeah. Have you had some crazy concert experiences like before? You must have, you must have like somewhere it's just like crazy sort of things. That well, happened. when we opened for Emerson Lake and Palmer, we got the gig on a Friday night and we were scheduled to play this club the next night, Saturday night. So Friday night, our manager, uh, who was out of New York, called and said, Emerson Lincoln Palmer needs an opening act because their opening act got sick. It was some guitar player named Ingwe Malmstream or something like that. I can't even pronounce his name. But he's like this, you know, rock guitarist, pretty popular guy from Germany or something. And ELP needed an opening act. So we got the gig on like a, sat- a Friday night, 7 o'clock. So we drive to New York the next day, and we're not on the bill. No one knows we're on the bill. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're uh, at the at the Meadowlands, and uh, you know, ELP they do their sound check, and then the opening act gets to do a sound check. Well, we didn't get to do a sound check per se, and uh, my keyboard player was. Uh, a genius and he could play anything. He was like a classical, classically trained keyboardist. And if you know anything about Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Keith Emerson is like this phenomenal keyboard player. So we're not on the bill. We're not mentioned anywhere on any of the, uh, you know, the print radio. And we're on the stage and we, we're getting ready. The, the lights are still on in the stadium, you know, but the curtain's down. And so, uh, we just, well, all we did was a line check just to make sure that all the mics were working, you know, and then the lights go off and it's time for us to, and the lights go off and my keyboard player starts playing this out of the blue because it wasn't something we discussed, starts playing this crazy, like classical, crazy keyboard sound, something that Keith Emerson would do and the crowd behind the curtain is going absolutely crazy. And I look down at my bass player, who is about a mile down to my right, and I'm yelling, they think we're ELP. He's like, what? They think we're ELP. And the crowd is going crazy and thinking it's Keith Emerson. So now the, the curtain is going up, and it's going up so slow, and the crowd is going crazy, crazy. And it's like, oh, we're standing there. It was just because I was, I was the only guitar player at the time. It was the... Me on guitar, Rich on bass, our keyboard player and a drummer, just four of us. And, you know, and my drummer is a black guy. So here comes the, the, the rise is going up. The curtain's going up and the crowd is like going crazy. And then it just goes. <laughs> like, and so my, my plan was to segue the first five songs. I wasn't going to stop. I was just going to, one song went and we'd go right into the next song. I would, didn't want to give them any chance to boo us. You know, or, or scream at us. Because I've done enough of them to know that, 
you can't sit there and, and think that you're going to be a rock star. Well, much to my surprise, the whole band's surprise, by the end of the second song, they were into the band. They were like into us, you know. So the crowd started to get back in. So they slowly but surely got back into it. And by the end of our, we only did a 30-minute set, but they were standing on their feet at the end with the light is going on, the whole nine yards. So I went from that crazy, frightening moment where I, oh, no, they think we're Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and we're like these schmucks, you know. Uh, so and it ended up a great show, and they loved us. You know, it was written up in uh, Billboard magazine a whole bit. So it's great. Rolling Stone. It was cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. Hmm. Do you ever get nervous when you go on stage? Uh, not really. Only because uh, I got to the point at that point when you're playing, if you play on stage, if you play live enough and you do it enough, when you're playing live, that stage becomes... Your dog crate, you know how a dog or a dog loves to go into the crate. That's their comfort zone. That's their sanctuary. So the stage became a place where I was really comfortable. You know, so I never, I mean, you know, maybe a little here and there, but not really. I never really got nervous going up in front of, I got nervous that night in front of, you know, when I, <laughs> only because I realized that I had walked into a, you know, you know, a, a maelstrom of like madness what was going to happen but most mostly not really no I never get really nervous I felt comfortable up there yeah kind of in your zone yeah yeah um what are you so as like an opener is it typical that you get to meet like the bands you're opening for for the most part sure oh yeah absolutely mm-hmm. yep uh we were the first, my band, the, so my bands, the band, my popular bands were the Vinnie Band, Semper Fi, and the Nor'easters. And Semper Fi was the band that opened for, um, uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer. When we were the Vinnie Band, we started off doing like, and we played in Boston a lot, so we started off doing like the early Monday nights, the Tuesday nights, and then we worked our way up to being, uh, on the weekends. And uh, we established ourselves a good following in Boston. You know, the college kids really were into the Vinnie Band. This is like, you know, in the 70s, from 70. The Vinnie Band was around from 1976 to 1984. But 77, 78, 79 was that whole punk new wave thing. So it was, right. the, the, it was just electric. And the Rat, the Rat Skeller and Kenmore Square was like the equivalent of CBGBs in New York. So the rat was the mecca of the music scene. Everyone and anyone who was anyone was at the rat. I mean, you know, David Bowie would walk in there, you know, it was just like, just this, you know, pulse of the whole Boston music scene. So the police, their first show in America was at the rat. They were going to do four nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Thursday night, we opened for them. So we opened for them their very first night in America. And uh, we were doing a sound check. And on, I kind of was aware of them. They were being played on, like, college radio. And so... Um, but they wouldn't, weren't really that huge at the time? They were 
on college radio. So it was like this underground. Okay. But there was a buzz in the city that mm. the police from England were coming and they were going to play at the Rat. So we had the first night with them. And so they did a sound check and then we did a sound check. So they were all hanging around, you know, Sting and Andy and uh can't remember the drummer's name right now. But um, so Sting and Andy were like kind of like into the my, my band. And so after our sound check, Sting walks up and says, you know, my name, the band was Vinny, and so people would just assume that I was Vinny. It's like, Vinny, do you know any good places to eat around here? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll take you to it. Um, I'll, I'll take you to a spot, you know. So I took Sting and Andy, the guitar player, from the police. We were in Kenmore Square when we went up, and I took them to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean... You know, that was the, the, I wasn't gonna, I didn't, we didn't eat in fancy restaurants and they were like, they were like dirt poor at the time. But we hung out and talked, you know, and, and Sting, in fact, Sting was really, really into the Vinny band, uh, to the point where after their show that night on WBCN, someone had called in, they were, they were doing like call-ins from the radio. And someone called in and asked him what he thought of the local bands in Boston, if he'd seen any. And he said, the Vinny band was a, they'd be a smash in London. Well, uh, every year they came, so they played the Rat, and then the next year they played the Paradise, and then they talk about the night they played the Rat, you know, and the, how it was in the Rat, and then they went from the Paradise to the Orpheum to the rest of the world and the rest, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I got to, I got, I hung out with rock stars, you know, the cars were like all starting out. We were all starting out together. And when the cars got really big, you know, you know, there was always, you know, like I said, just these rock stars would come in and hang out at the rat, at the rat. You know, Thin Lizzy, Aerosmith. I mean, it was everyone that was anyone. David Bowie, I looked over my shoulder one time and there's David Bowie standing there, you know. It was just that kind of a scene. We ended up being very close to the cars and they played on my album, the Vinny album. And David from the cars, who was the mastermind, the, not the mastermind, the, uh, the concept guy behind the whole cars look and logo and that whole scene, that whole, uh, marketing. David produced my albums. So I knew all the, everyone at the cars in the, in the cars. I knew, you know, like the, you know, the police. And so we, we'd all kind of, you know, intermingle as, you know, careers were taken off or not taken off, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Is the, I assume the rat's no longer around. How long? No, it's gone, long gone. Mm-hmm. They, I think it came down in the, oh, the late 90s or something. Yeah, I mean, but from the 70s right through the 80s, it was the mecca mm-hmm. of the Boston rock scene, you know. And we so we used to play the we'd play the Rat, and then we'd play Cantones, the Paradise, the Club, and then we'd go to New York and we'd Rhode Island, and you know, up, we'd come up to New Hampshire and you know, it, wherever, you know. There was just so many shows. I can't, you know, I couldn't even begin to tell you, you know. Yeah. Um, so what, I guess what's kept you driven for so long to just keep on forming new bands and performing new music for all these, all these years? 
you know, it's just music. Once it's in you, man, once it's in you, once it's coursing through your veins, man, it's just, you know, I, it's like I can't, I can't stop writing songs. I can't stop playing the guitar. I can't stop playing out. I don't play out nearly as much as I used to. I just don't have the energy, you know, to want to, cause it's, you know, it can, wear you down man you know playing night after night after night yeah you know traveling here doing this you know it's just too much but for me now nowadays it's just that music is just this creative force that's just bubbling under the surface constantly i'm always writing songs i'll stop and you know write something down write a lyric down or come up with a riff and write that down and then put lyrics to it you know it's just I don't know if it if it ever ends. I if I had to tell you right now, I would say no. It doesn't. It's just going to be there. Yeah. It's like anything else that you know, that creative force that's just there. You know. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the um, the Latin America tour that you did. Yeah. What? How many countries did you tour in? We uh, we did Colombia, Venezuela, uh, and. Colombia, Venezuela, and we were supposed to go up into Panama and Honduras, but the tour kind of fell apart uh, going into Central America. The South America stuff was great. We It was really good, you know. Mm-hmm. We were the first American band to do that. This was in 1983. Wow. We were the first band, yeah, to, do, to play down there. It's pretty, you know, I mean, I can't even, I can't speak any Spanish. So when I do interviews on the radio and the DJ would ask me a question in English and then he would ask me in Spanish and then I would answer in English and then he would answer for me in Spanish. So it was like two of each back and forth, you know, it's pretty funny, you know. Yeah. Was, were the places that you're performing in, um, like, did you ever feel like, like this is dangerous or like you were in some sort of like danger? During when you were performing over there, uh, yeah, and that's the, the the one of the most dangerous experiences of my life will be in my book. But that's like a that's like an hour story to tell you this story. Okay. But I did this, you know, I had a harrowing harrowing experience in Medellin, Colombia. You know, you've heard of Medellin. Oh yeah, yeah. So I we never heard of Medellin in 1983. None of us had heard of it. You know. So, you know, just crazy. It was just a crazy Ralph Fatello story that if it didn't happen to me, I wouldn't have. If it didn't happen to me, if someone told me the story, I'd be like, that's bullshit, man. What are you talking about? But it happened, you know. It was crazy. It's absolutely insane. Oh, God. Is it possible to give like a, um, I don't know, like a. Preview well, or a... here's what I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. We had a single out. Why can't you say love? Backed with Hijacker, and we had a, we were in the process of recording our album, which was called Olas de Sexo. You know, it was we had this big Latin American following in Boston. So the Vinnie Band went from this punk rock to kind of straight rock into this you know, kind of punk rock to new wave, and then I kind of morphed into this like Latin American funk type thing. So I was constantly, you know, like a chameleon, just changing the style of music. And we developed this 
really big Latin American following. And all these uh, Latin American college kids, you know, South America and Spain, you know, international students were like really into us. You know, we had, we had, I'd have Tambali players and Conga players and I had backup girls singing, you know, and it was like this huge dance crowd. And so we had this song, Why Can't You Say Love? So that was the only single we had. And that was on the radio in South America. Uh, and it was played on Bogota radio. So we're going to Medellin, and I had never heard of Medellin, but my tour manager, Juan Carlos, come up to me and said, uh, I've got some great news. I'm like, what's, the, what's that? He goes, the mafia is coming to see us at, uh, see us at the club we're playing. I'm like, what mafia? You know, like, we talking about, I'm thinking the only mafia I knew about was, you know, the mafia back in the States. Like the mafia, what? And he goes, and, they, and he said, if they like us, they're going to take us to their farm and we're going to play on their farm. I said, I'm not playing for the mafia. I'm not going to anybody's farm. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> Anyways, so long story short, we get to the club and we do a sound check and Juan Carlos comes back and says, great news. He's here. The mafia is here. I'm like, I told you, man, I don't care. I'm not playing for the freaking mafia. I'm not going to anybody's farm, you know? And, and, uh, and he loves Why Can't You Say Love, the song. Why mm-hmm. Can't You Say Love? Like, he wa- you, you're going to play that. It's like, what, Juan, we always, that's the only hit that they know. Of course we're going to play it. But you play, anyone who's been to a concert knows that no band will play their hit song, the first song. Mm-hmm. It comes at the end of the set. So he comes in pleading with me to play Why Can't You Say Love, the first song. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. Because the mafia wants to hear Why Can't You Say Love. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, you don't play your, you don't play the hit, the first song, man. Anyways, he comes back and he's terrified. And I, I look out there and I see this guy sitting there. I see two other guys behind him. He's got two women with him. And they're sitting right in the front, right in front of me where I'd be standing, you know. I'm looking behind the curtain. I'm like, what the? So he comes in, he's pleading, he's like almost in tears, you know. Now, I had no security. I had my, I had a, a two stage hands and a tour manager and then the band. We didn't have like security, you know. So he comes in and so I give in. I give in and play Why Can't You Say Love, the very first song. I played my hit song, the first song of an hour long set. So the only song they know is the first song I play. So we go into song number two, and then we start number three, and here comes Juan Carlos again. They want to hear. He wants to hear. Why can't you say love again? I'm like, what? I just played it. He's like, please, please, please. I'm like, no, I'm not doing it, man. And freaking out, freaking out. Comes back. I do the third song, and I could see this guy is getting all pissed off. <clears throat> here comes Juan Carlos again, pleading with me. Can you please play Why Can't You Say Love? I give in, I play it again. Now I've played Why Can't You Say Love, the first song, and now I've played it for the fourth song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. And I see the guy, and he, you know, he's liking the song. And he, like, <laughs> next thing you know, he comes back again, two songs later. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then I said, I grabbed the mic. I'm like, what am I, a fucking jukebox? You know? I'm not going to play it. And he throws up his arms. He's all pissed off. And and he, I, and, he, and, uh, and, and one cow says, he hates you. He hates you. Yeah, it's like, fuck him. And he walks. He storms off. He walks off. 
And I'm like, we're not going to play the farm. I said, I don't give up. I told you, I didn't care. I, I, I'm, we're not, I wasn't going to do it anyways. Oh, he hates you. He hates you. And they leave. And I don't think anything of it. You know, they're gone. The tour continues on. And a year later, we're watching, I'm watching the news. CNN is on. And on the screen, I see Medellin, Colombia. I'm like, huh. And all of a sudden, boom, there's this guy's face. And, and I look, I'm like, oh, my God. That's the guy that I was yelling at. Pablo Escobar. No way. <laughs> yeah, there's a way. Pablo Escobar. And my, my drummer says, dude, you told them to go fucking south. <laughs> and so the, the whole, for the whole rest of the time, the two or three years that followed, every time he'd come on, I'd be like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, and then I guess there was an HBO series about Pablo, Pablo Escobar, mm-hmm. that I didn't know anything about. And my friend called me one time, a surfer friend of mine, and says, Dude, you're not, did you, have you watched the Pablo uh, series? I was like, no, I haven't watched it. He goes, you're not going to believe the very first episode, Pablo makes the band play the same song over and over and over again. The band on the TV series. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. So, there was that. That's amazing. <laughs> That's unreal. Mm. Um, uh, let's um, let's move to, uh, to to surfing now. Okay. Um, and I think you you already touched on kind of why you decided to to pick it up in the beginning. But um, a lot of people describe surfing as addictive. Um, I guess. Do you think it's addictive? And I guess if so, why do you think it is? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a you know addiction like a like a drug addiction, but surfers, as you know, because your dad mm-hmm. is a perfect example. Surfers will do and say anything to go surfing. They will lie, they will <laughs> cheat, they will get out of anything just to go surfing. I mean, I mean, talking like when you're young to try to get you know surfing. <laughs> Oh, my God. And, you know, it took me a while to realize what is it about this? Why why am I so obsessed with, I mean, surfers, real hardcore surfers. What is it about? What is it about surfing that is so incredibly like it's all you think about? It's like it's like overpowering sometimes. And then it dawned on me why it's really of all the sports and lifestyles out there, surfing is so unique and so special when you stop and think about what it is that you're actually doing, how a tempest starts in the ocean. It was a storm, a tempest, thousands of miles away that turns into this, you know, storm. It creates, you know, swells and eventually waves. And these waves are traveling all this way, thousands of miles away. And you are there to meet this wave at the end of its existence, this living liquid matter, that you share that living liquid matter's last moments on, on the planet, that you're there. You know, and then that wave is going to break whether you were there or not, but the fact that you were there, you hear surfers say, I got the best, I got the wave of my life. I got the best ride of my life. And I always say, if you stop and think about it, If you did anything different throughout the day, if you stopped to brush your teeth or take the trash out and you were just a minute off, that wouldn't have happened. So the fact that you were there to meet this wave, 
this perfect wave, this one wave. And it just like dawned on me, like, that's what it is. It's this connection to something so deep and so spiritual, but so real and, you know, living matter. And once you parallel a wave, once you actually get up and ride a wave, mm-hmm. you either want to do it again or you don't want to do it again. And the surfers that want to do it again are going to do it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. That feeling, that sensation of riding along, you know, parallel with a wave and hearing that board and the water coming off the board. But when I realized, when I put it all together, the whole concept of this wave coming all this way and that you were there to meet that wave, you know, you get this big barrel inside the wave and how special that is, the fact that you were there and the wave kind of dissipates and kind of, you know, reforms and goes back out. But what other sport does that? Well, you don't get that in football or basketball or mm-hmm. baseball or fighting or, you know, gymnastics is... Everything is, you know, that's all kind of generic, you know, man-made stuff. This is something way, way beyond that. So, yeah, it's an addiction to life is what it is. Hmm. Yeah, that's a interesting way of, uh, <clears throat> of, uh, of putting it, I think. Um, like there's... Like, you never know when the next wave you'll catch might be the wave of your life, too. It's kind of like that chase or, like, that kind of, like, you just kind of, like, uncertainty. Like, this next wave might be it or, like, this next wave, you know, something like that. Yeah, I mean, and and there's the whole danger element, too, once it gets big. But the conditions change. You know, I always say, like, you know, surfing, if you were to compare it to, like, you know, when... Surfers, like my friend of mine, I was the best man uh, at his wedding, and I said, marriage is a lot like surfing. He said, you're going to have your good days. There'll be those great, perfect days. But then you're going to have those days where it's onshore and raining and the surf is crap. You know, it's just not fun. But you know, you know that there's going to be better days coming, that those good waves are going to come back again. So if you approach marriage like you do surfing, you can get through the junky, crappy days because you know that those good days are going to be coming. So, yeah. The philosophy of surfing slash life. Mm-hmm. Right. By Ralph Fatello. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll end it there. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's, what's your favorite wave in the world that you've ever surfed? Uh, you know... My favorite wave, in the, if I had to pick a spot, I would pick right here, right here in, at, at 10th Street. In, you know? in, New, New, in New Hampshire. Yeah. I mean, I've been all over the world surfing, all over the world, and I've surfed some amazing uh, waves here and there, but there's something about surfing at home that, you know, for me, that's my favorite wave, is the wave at home here. Mm-hmm. You know, getting a, a good, good wave at 10th Street, you know, off the jetty, Ralph's rights, you know, mm-hmm. and to me, that's, you know, that's my favorite wave, you know. I mean, I've got spots over the years that I would, you know, go to that were really special places. You know, I've surfed places for the first time, you know, first surfer out, you know, virgin go outs that, that no one's ever surfed before. Mm-hmm. So those are special. But there's something about the, the wave down the street here that's. 
special to me. My favorite wave would be always be, you know, 10th Street. What, what's, uh, what's, what's 10th Street? Um, is there another name for that? Just for, like, my The name? Wall. Oh, The Wall. Okay. The Wall. Yeah. I mean, you know, the streets are numbered. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So 10th Street, that's where we've all, I mean, I've been surfing 10th Street since the 60s. You know, you know, so it's a, I have a, a long, long, long relationship with that wave. Yeah, right. You know? And you at some point morphed your artistic interest with surfing to create um, a surf movie production company, right? Yep, yep. When did you create that? Well, I started surfing in 64, and shortly after, I started documenting surfing, you know, taking photos, you know, doing movies. And the love of documenting surfing was as great as the love of actually surfing. You know, some people can't, they can't fathom that. They can't, they don't understand it. Like, they're always like, let's go. You know, I'm like, I, I've learned early on that you need to shoot first and then surf, you know. Because of the way conditions can change. You know, if it's a glassy morning and the surf is perfect, you know, you know, don't get me wrong, I've surfed that, but I know that if I'm gonna be, you know, if I'm gonna, you know, document this, capture these waves, I need to shoot it first, you know? So I've just, I've always, I've always had a love of watching, you know, waves and watching surfing. So the, the capturing of that on, movies or on still cameras was right there from the very beginning and uh you know i've I've just i have reels and reels and reels of old like super 8 and 16 millimeter 8 millimeter stacks and stacks of movies and uh you know i just done it for so long and you know i think my dad my dad always had my other my dad a musician he turned me on to surfing and he also was into photography. He would develop his own film, you know. So another, you know, connection to my father was his, you know, uh, always taking movies and always taking photos. So that was something that just came natural to me. By the time I, the technology of the Internet and other things were coming along, uh, I, you know, I started making surf movies and came up with my own, you know, uh, label surf free or die. You know, I live in New Hampshire, live free or die. I'm like surf free or die is as my company, mm-hmm. and just started making uh, surf movies. And you know, the thing about surfing and surf movies and surf photos is there is not a single surfer on the planet, not a one. And if they tell you that they don't care about that, they're lying through their teeth. Every surfer. Everyone wants to see a, a photo of them surfing or movies of them surfing. And if they tell you differently, they're lying through their teeth. So I knew that because I want that too. I mean, I, I, I you know, every, every surfer wants to see because it's that special that to get a photo of you riding this wave, it's like, oh, you know, I got to have that. So I knew early on that my niche carving and out here in northern New England that I I had a built-in audience. Mm -hmm. And so starting the Surf Free or Die Productions, you know, was, I already had, the foundation was already there. and just kind of went from there. 
by the time I started the, you know, the blog, it was already, you know, in place. And I wasn't going out chasing down surf stars like Kelly Slaters or whoever else. I didn't care about those guys. You know, I didn't care about traveling around to going to Pipeline or surfing Chopu or any of those places. I knew that my audience and my people were what I was going to go after. I wanted to create my own, you know, production company and create my own blog and my own surf photos here in northern New England, New Hampshire. And so that's how it all came about. The, the writing and all that, you know, I write music, you know. And so writing was just another extension of writing music or just the create, the whole creative process. You know, making movies, you know, taking photos, the editing, you know, the designing of all the, you know, the, the titling and the packaging. You know, I went to art school. You know, I went, to, I graduated from the Art Institute of Boston. And, uh, you know, it was all just all encompassing, all within that, you know, same realm of surfing and Music and creativity was all there. What's in a like? What's in a particular surf movie for? Um, I guess people haven't watched it. Is it like just like a lot of highlights of people surfing, or like do you try to incorporate some other stuff? Like, I do it. You know, I try to keep it fresh. I mean, but again, you know, there's only there's only so much you can do within the surf movie. You know genre of you know what you can show so i mean i try to you know i try to mix it up with you know showing you know portrait stuff so you know the people themselves you know and mm-hmm. the environment you know the landscapes but typically uh, uh i won't shoot you know crappy surf i won't you know this i won't do that mm-hmm. i only shoot the things that are appealing to me if they look beautiful to me then i'm assuming they're going to look beautiful to someone else, you know. And uh, the other thing about today, the world we live in today, everything is so short. It's the Instagram 30-second mode. But, you know, I'm not not really into that. I like to make a little movie. I like to make these little stories, you know. You know, so, I mean, I've got almost 300 videos on my Vimeo page, and they're web edits. They're like three to five minutes long. But I've got full feature movies as well, where I try to, you know, if I have a concept for a movie, I like to run with it, you know, and just create a whole movie with interviews and little humorous stuff here and there. But it's always going to be about the surf and the surfers, you know. Uh, You know, I try to shoot as many people as I can, but the rule of thumb is I shoot the best surfers on the best waves. So whoever that is, Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, chasing down the surf styles. I'm just shooting the best surfers on the best waves. So, it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you still do it today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm editing one right now, you know. Oh, okay. So, I, you know, I'm constantly, constantly shooting. You know, I think people think that the blog... And it's content. I must hit like I push the uh, magic button and it pops up every Sunday night. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. You know, I, I have I have incorporated other 
photographers and videographers that contribute their stuff. And, uh, you know, I check the forecast. I know when there's going to be surf, so I'm on it, you know. I get, I shoot it, you know, then go through the, the raw photos or the raw video, get rid of the ones I don't like, which is great nowadays because back when I first started, when you shot movie film, you were stuck with that, man. It wasn't like you could erase it, you know. So you're shooting movie film and it's like just eating up the film. It's like <laughs> you're stuck with that, brother. So you better make sure when you pull that trigger back in the old days that you wanted to shoot that. And same with uh, still photography. You only get a 36 roll. I would shoot today, and no exaggeration, between 300 and 500 photos at a session with digital. You know, just snapping off because I know that I can just, you know, shit can them when I, I don't want them. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I can delete them. You know, I throw everything into a folder. Then I go, and from that folder, I'll take the best, what I think is the best and bring them into another folder. And then with that folder, I'll even edit even more and then take it to the final blog folder. So what you see on the blog every week is a combination of three steps of getting there. Okay. Yeah. And how did, um, I guess, how did that, how did your blog start in the first place? Yeah. So I was basically doing Ralph's pick of the week was a, a photo that was on the cinnamon rainbows website. And so I would just have like a photo and I'd write a caption and the caption started getting longer. Then I wanted to add more than one photo. But for the longest time, it was just a pick on cinnamon rainbows. And I realized that it was getting to the point where, you know, I needed to add more and I could feel this thing, you know, building. So talking with Dave, I said, I need to go off on my own, but I want you to still be involved. And he has the main masthead above Ralph's pick. And so it's, you know, Cinnamon Rainbow's masthead. And then under that is the whole blog, basically. And it just grew. It kept growing and growing. I added more sponsors. Uh, but it was just this, you know, groundswell, no pun intended, of just support from the community and beyond. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with Google Analytics, you're able to see how many people are reading it and where they are. And it started in New England. And then there was like some in Rhode Island, you know, you know, Maine, New Hampshire, Mass, Rhode Island. Then it started to sprinkle down. Then it was down in Florida. And then it, there was a couple in California. And then it just grew, Chase, and grew and grew to the point where every single state in the country, and then, you know, the islands and the Caribbean, and then Europe and, uh, you know, the South Pacific. It was all over the world. Uh, it's just... And I don't even advertise. It's like it's just like this, you know, underground network of this guy Ralph. And I would, you know, I write basically about surfing, but I can't help myself. And I, you know, I end up writing about the world, you know, that we live in. And try not to get political, but I can't help it. You know, at <laughs> times when I hear absurd things come out of people's mouths that need to be acknowledged, you know. So I get to the point where I mean, I've had, I mean, I've rubbed people the wrong way. I've had this, the RBI warning, you know, the Ralph Bureau of Investigation, just saying that the words and opinions on this blog are mine alone. Do not reflect on the sponsors, you know. 
And so, mm-hmm. you know, I just, it's there as a, you know, a, base, a basic, you know, warning to let you know that I used to have a, a, an opening page where you had to click on it. You had to read this thing first to get to the blog because it was that controversial at while. <laughs> you know, I try and I, like, I'm forever. I mean, I still, I guess I still, you know, upset a lot of the, uh, Trump supporters. You know, they get upset with me. But, you know, I, you know, I'm just documenting and writing about what's out there. So it's basically about surfing, but again, you know, I'll write about something that's happened in the world, something that's happened locally. Someone mm-hmm. passes away, I write a community thing about them, you know, something historical, I tie it in, you know, so I'm never at a loss for subject matter. You know, there's always something to write about, you know. And it's become what it's become. And I kind of knew this early on of like a lot of surfers who live in New England and they end up, you know, moving elsewhere. They stay connected to New Hampshire through my blog every week. I can't tell you if I had a dime for every time someone said, dude, I read your blog every week. It's my connection to home. I get it. I get that. You know, it's just constant, you know, people that read it. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't mean, I'm thinking because I and I, you know, I live my life with my heart on my sleeve. So I, I hold back nothing. I will tell you my, you know, deepest, you know, feelings about something. You know, I'll spout off about, you know, some absurd, you know, something, whatever. Yeah. And I'll get emotional about I get really emotional about, you know, the passings of friends and family and pets and. So, but I still always kind of bring it back to the whole surf thing, always. But it somehow has connected with thousands and thousands of people, over three hundred thousand. Wow! Around the world, <laughs> Did you, can you believe it? Because I can't. I mean, I look at it and like this can't be true. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at Google Analytics because I don't really advertise, but people are the network. The underground surf network mm-hmm. is huge. It's huge. And do you think that's what it is? Like, yeah, it can. Mm-hmm. What else can it be? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You know, people are aware of it. You know, it. You know, people become aware of it, and then one person turns someone else on. Like, I, I'm every like the other day, I had two people that I you know never met before say, "Hey, man, I read your blog all the time." Like, that's good, man. Thank you. I appreciate the support. I hear it all the time. And I hear it out in California. I'll hear it in Hawaii. You know, it's like, so I'm like this weekly, you know, community newsletter (laughs) that is spread around the globe, Mm -hmm. you know. And I mince no words, man. I don't have a problem with dropping the F-bombs. And if something is really absurd, then I'm going to, you know, let you know about it, you know. You know, and I don't, you know, damn the torpedoes. I don't care. If, yeah. the, if the Trumpers don't like me, I don't really care, you know. You know, it is. I'm just. Is is, I'm yeah. just. I'm not. I'm not making the stuff up. Is is the is the point? Mm-hmm. You know, if he says something stupid, and I, I write about it, it's not that I. I'm making it up. He said this. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the content, um, other than surfing on your blog, could really be anything kind of just what you're kind of 
feeling or what you kind of really want to react to? Yeah, I mean, some I mean, I have a, a, a like a, 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 a eight and a half by eleven sheet every week, and I you know put you know Ralph pick of the week you know, and I put the date on it, and then I have the galleries that I'm going to use, and then I have notes underneath that of what I'm going to write about if something has happened during the week, like for instance this week on Monday night, my wife and I were. Awoken to, we awakened up to a, uh, the detector going off in the house. And I thought it was a smoke detector and we were getting up and she was groggy and I was kind of groggy and trying to get up and see what the detector was and it wasn't a smoke detector. It was a carbon monoxide detector. And so if we didn't have that and we had the fire department came, police came, and the fire department were out in the street. They were getting strong readings in the street. Wow. And when they got in the house, it was going through the roof. And he told me, if you didn't have the detector, you could have easily have died. You and your wife and your pets would have died on Monday night. We wouldn't be having this interview right now. So I'm writing about that mm-hmm. this weekend as a public service announcement. You need, If you don't have a carbon monoxide detector, get one. If you have one, check the batteries. Because, God forbid, I mean, it could have ended but, right yeah. then and there, you know. What was the the cause? A The furnace was clogged. The furnace downstairs was clogged, and the carbon monoxide was escaping through the back and just filling the house. Well, we had headaches, me and my wife, and sore throats, you know, for, the, for two days there. And that night was just like... You got to be kidding me, you know? Yeah. To be to go through what I've gone through in my life, and then the thought of I went to bed that night and didn't wake up. It's kind of scary, man. Yeah, that's you know? scary. Yeah. So I'm silent. writing about that. Silent killer, yeah. <laughs> the silent killer, exactly. And the fact that Sunday, uh, February 23rd, 2020 is the 75th anniversary of the flag raising on on Mount Suribachi on, in Iwo Jima, on Iwo Jima. I'm writing about that. Mm-hmm. And the swell that we had this week. Yeah. That's cool. Always tie it in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always bring them back. Yeah, yeah. To the liquid matter. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you end the blog every week with the phrase, surfing heals all wounds, right? Yeah. Um, why did you decide on that? Because surfing saved my life. It literally saved my life. Because when I came back from Vietnam, I was, I was a freaking mess. I was just lost, you know, completely. And didn't know, no one knew what, no one even came up with the term post-traumatic stress yet. That wasn't even on the radar. Mm-hmm. And when we came back, we came back and the country was, and turmoil, and you couldn't say you were a veteran. You certainly didn't tell anybody you were in Vietnam, so you came back and kind of slipped into society. So you had to take all of what you just went through and just compress it and get back into the world. And so if it wasn't for surfing, you know, I went, I shut down mm-hmm. and went dark, did drugs, alcohol and with surfing 
it was surfing that saved me. I realized when I paddled out into the water, into the ocean, and caught and started riding waves again, it's, it was like, the, okay, I'm going to be all right, man. I'm going to be okay. So surfing heals all wounds. I came up with that because of that. But also, I turned on, um, we do the wounded warriors hit the beach every year. And I came up, when I was the commander in the Legion, the American Legion, it was for 13 years I was commander, I came up with the whole uh, hit the beach, taking wounded warriors surfing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember bringing that up in front of the members, and they're like, what? I'm like, surfing saved my life. We could help these guys out. These men and women are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, missing limbs, you know, post-traumatic stress, uh, you know, back injuries, what have you, you know. Surfing, if it could save me, it could save them. And sure enough, it's exactly what happened. And then the surfing with smiles, taking kids with autism, surfing. You know, surfing heals all wounds. Surfing is a healing agent. There's mm-hmm. something about that ocean that is just, you know, it just washes away all the negativity, all the darkness, all the problems. It just washes away, and it's just you in the ocean. That's where surfing heals all wounds yeah, came yeah. from, man. That's awesome. Um, and you mentioned the um, the wounded warriors, uh, the hit the beach um, yep. that you do every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also done a lot of other service and volunteer work around surfing too, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to maybe talk, touch on some of the others? Uh, I'm, I'm basically a volunteer, even though my dad warned me about don't volunteer when I joined the Marines. Whatever you do, don't volunteer for anything, <laughs> you know. But I've, I'm a volunteer, you know. I volunteered to do to serve my country. I volunteered to do this. I see. I have another saying. I see wrong and try to right it, you know. So if there was a need for volunteers, I would step up and volunteer. I'm basically a volunteer. So I would volunteer to coach and get on these committees to do this, to build that, to build that, to make this better. Something, if someone needed help or an an issue, there was a situation that needed to be corrected, I'm going to step up and volunteer. That's just in my DNA. I'm a volunteer. I'm going to raise my hand, you know, and come and help you. Right. Um, and have you've done a couple, um, like fun fundraising, I guess, activities through surfing, where you surfed every day of the year. Right? I did. I took. I used surfing again as an as a vehicle to raise awareness and to raise funds. So my, my dad passed away in 2000. He died of uh, diabetes. And so I was like, you know, I wanted to do something in his memory. Man to turn me on to surfing and music and art. He was also an artist. So I didn't forgot to mention that. But so someone who was such a main inf- influence on my life, I wanted to do something in his memory. So Using surfing, I came up with the catchaway for Gus. His name was Gus. And, uh, so I would, my criteria was to catch one wave, uh, ride one wave every day for one year 
and ride the length of my board. So if I was on a nine-foot board, I had to go nine feet, you know, to consider it a ride. Because there's days when the waves are, you know, six inches, three inches tall. Right. You know, or days when it's ten feet, you know. So I had to catch at least one wave and, and go the length of my board. And I ended up raising uh, $33,000 for the American Diabetes Association. I used that as a, a vehicle, you know, surfing. You know, catch a wave for Gus. One wave every day, 365 consecutive days. I took that whole mindset of doing a tour in Vietnam. I did one tour, you know. We did 365 days. And so I'm going to do that. I'll do it with surfing. And then I did it, and I did that when I turned 50. And then, uh, you know, I didn't think I'd ever do it again. And then a friend of ours had this little girl, Molly, and I ran this beach party every year called Surf Family Robinson, where I came up with this idea of all the surfers who had kids. We'd have a beach party on Labor Day weekend, and we'd do, like, to take them all boogie board and have treasure hunts, a pirate comes and all kind. Of, it was just a really fun time, and uh, you know, I've never, I we've lost like grandparents to that group, and the group started with like ten of us and ended up being over a hundred parents and kids every week, every uh, every year, every Labor Day weekend. Sir Family Robinson, and then one year, this little girl Molly had come and she loved her and her little brother. Came a second year and then she got sick. Uh, you know, large cell lymphoma, got sick and passed away within like six months. And it, you know, freaked everybody out. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, like, I've never lost a child in Sir, at Sir Family Robinson. So I was like, you know what, man? I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it like I did for my dad, and I'll do it for Molly, catch away for Molly. And when I turned 60, I did, I did it again every single day for a year. That's and, great. You know, surfing, using surfing, surfing heals all wounds again, yeah. you know. And it just brought an awareness to Molly's case, cancer and, and the Raleigh family. That's awesome. All yeah. of the, uh, the great work that you've done in uh, combining service with, with surfing. Um, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty unique in, yeah. a, in a way. Um, and I know, uh, my family very much appreciates um, the surfing with smiles due to um, my brother Skyler um, yeah. and having him uh, get on the board and ride some waves because he's yeah. he loves surfing as as you know he <laughs> Sky is the best man he knows so much about surfing it's incredible oh yeah I mean he knows he's tuned into the whole surf thing mm-hmm. I mean it's 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 so good one of my favorite photos of all time is my son Max with Sky on a wave. You know, the two of them with smiles on their face. The whole surfing with smiles things. I don't know who is smiling more, the participants or the volunteers, because it's both. Yeah. You know, it is both. It's incredible what surfing can do. Mm-hmm. It's unreal. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you've done a lot of great uh, service work over the years. Um, one act of service I have yet to touch on, but I know you take a lot of pride in, is being a Marine. Um, yep. and you list, you, enli- you enlisted in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why did you enlist? Well, you know, I grew up, my dad was a, 
a World War II veteran. Every single one of my uncles were World War II veterans. My youngest uncle was a Korean War veteran. They all saw combat. It was just something that I was around, you know. And, you know, when you're around that and you see it, you know, and you live with it, and my, they were active in the veterans organizations, you know, the VFW, Veterans of Foreign Wars. And, but I was always around it, so I, it was, it was constant with me, you know, I just grew up in that environment. And so by 1965, when Vietnam was all of a sudden a blip on the radar, you know, the Marines landed in March of 65 and the war started to escalate, it was like the only you know, I, I'm a volunteer. You know, my country was at war. My parents, my my father, all my uncles, they all volunteered. Mm-hmm. And so it was just something that was part of my whole upbringing. And in the neighborhood, you know, all the older kids were going in and they were rotating back. And so it was just something that was just, it was already like a given that I was going to go in. Mm-hmm. And... I chose the Marines, uh, well, ironically, because of the photo of the flag raising on Suribachi, uh, you know, on Iwo Jima that I just mentioned about the 75th anniversary is on Sunday, the 23rd. I remember being a little kid and seeing that photo of one of my dad's World War II mag- books and stopping at that photo and that photo of Joe Rosenthal, who got the Pulitzer Prize for taking that photo of the flag raising. And I looked at that photo and it just hit me. It was like, my God, you know, I don't know who those guys are. I didn't know if they were army or what they were. I didn't know. I just knew that I wanted to be one of them. I wanted to feel that. I wanted to be part of that, you know. So ended up being, it was the flag raiser and the Marines. And, you know, the Marine Corps dress blues and the whole bit. And <clears throat> the funny a funny story uh, is during the war, uh, the peak of the war, uh, 1968, was when I enlisted. My recruiter promised me that I would be a combat artist. So combat artist is an actual military occupation okay. that the Marines had. Uh, they had it since like World War One, World War Two was big career in Vietnam. They'd have a Marine drawing pictures, you know, sketching, you know, doing like sketches. And uh, so I'd be back in the rear with the gear drawing pictures. So my recruiters, you join the Marine Corps and you'll be a combat artist. And so you'll, I always knew that I'd go to join the Marines. I'd get back and I'd go to uh, college under the GI Bill. I was going to go to art school. And, uh, so, you know, my whole, okay, I'm going to be a Marine. I'm going to serve my country, be a Marine, but I'll also be an artist. I'm going to go to art school after this is all over. We couldn't afford to send me to college. My parents were, just didn't have, you know, there was six of us, my mother and father and six kids, three boys and three girls. We lived in a small little ranch. The boys all slept in one room. The girls slept in another room, you know. They weren't gonna, they couldn't afford to send me to college. I wasn't gonna go to Canada. You know, people were trying to get out of the draft mm-hmm. by going to Canada. So I just figured, okay, if I'm gonna join, if I'm gonna enlist, and I didn't want to be drafted, 
because I didn't want to be in a war with people who didn't want to be there, you know. So my thinking right. was, I, I'll listen to the Marines, I'll be with the best, but I'm also going to kill two birds at one stone. I'll be with the, the best and be an artist, you know. Well, what happened was, Chase, I went to boot camp, Paris Island, and, uh, you know, I came from a large Italian family, you know. I'm used to sitting down and eating a meal. You know, when you ate at my house, there was like layers and layers and layers of food that were coming out. It wasn't like you sat down and you were done 10 minutes later. It was a meal. So I got to Paris Island and that was gone. It was, we had to be done eating and standing outside in formation with our notebooks by the time our drill instructors were done eating what they were eating, which consisted of a cigarette and a cup of coffee. So I never had enough time to eat. I was constantly hungry. And one day uh, we were doing PT uh, physical training and I heard a voice behind me. It was uh, the series gunnery sergeant who was in charge of all the drill instructors. And he looked at me and said, you know, Jesus Christ, is that Jimmy Durante? Now, Jimmy Durante is a comic from the 1940s with a large nose. And I'm like, doing push-ups, and I'm looking over my shoulder like, is he talking about me? And next thing you know, he calls me up, and he puts his arm around me and said, Jimmy Durante, where you from, Jimmy? And I said, you, know, you don't say, I was from you know, I was from Beverly, Mass., but you don't say Beverly, you say Boston. It's like if you were in, from New Hampshire, you would say you're from Portsmouth. You named the big city. Mm. I said, sir, the private's from Boston. He said, I'm from Boston, Jimmy. I'm from Boston. He put, next thing you know, I'm... Every time he would show up, he would pull me out of formation and start talking to me, you know. And uh, it just I became his mouse. Uh, the mouse is the guy that goes, the recruit that goes and gets his coffee, you know, wakes him up in the morning. So I had to, I had to get up at 0400, run down to the drill instructor's barracks to wake up the series gunnery sergeant, and, and then run back to my uh, barracks and then go to Chow. Well, so I was constantly his mouse. I would always get him stuff, you know. And uh, one time I go to wake him up at 0400. I'm banging on his door in the drill instructor's barracks. And sir, the prime, sir, the time on deck is 0400. I don't hear any noise. I bang, bang, bang. Sir, the time on deck is 040500. Oh, you know, and finally, you know, it's like 15 minutes past. And I realize something's wrong. I open the door and look inside and he's laying in his rack. And he's got a lit cigarette in his fingers. And the sheet is like, not on flames, but, you know, like burning the embers. Uh -huh. You know, his sheet. So I run in and put the, uh, put the, uh, his cigarette out. And he wakes up. And he's in his skivvies, you know, he, you know, his underwear, you know, his boxer shots and t-shirt. You know, I said, sir, you're, you know, and he's like, Jesus, Jimmy, you saved my life. I said, no, no, sir, the private didn't. He said, bullshit, Jimmy, you saved my life. Anyways, long story short, he makes me put the drone suck the campaign cover on his head, you know, the, the Smokey the Bear hat. Mm -hmm. And uh, he makes me repeat that I'm Smokey the Bear. Anyways, he, <laughs> the, other D, the other DIs come in and look at me. But he's standing there, and he's got his T-shirt on, his uh, tank top and skivvies, and he's covered in scars, like fresh scars. He said, look at me, Jimmy. I look like a piece of Swiss cheese. And he, had, he was in Way City in 1968. And got shrapnel wounds all up in his upper chest and his neck. And he was like, you don't want to go to Vietnam, Jimmy. You do not want to go. I said, no, sir, the private doesn't. No, I don't. Anyways, 
the next two weeks are on the rifle range. Now, I've been with Gani Maldowney, you know, the series, he's in charge of the DIs, and all of a sudden he's gone because we're on the rifle range and we're practicing how to fire. You know, every Marine is a rifleman. So you do a week with the M14 of snapping in on targets. You just aim at a barrel, at a target on a barrel, and they teach you how to do the windage, you know, the, on the, on the, on the sights, how to tie the, the strap around your arm. But I don't care about any of that because I'm going to be a combat, combat artist. Yeah. I'm not going to be carrying a rifle. I'm going to be carrying a paintbrush or a, a pencil. So the whole week, I'm like just, you know, they're snapping in, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, man, you know, I'm like doing the windage and the dope. I don't really care because I'm going to be an artist. And then you do a week of actually firing the weapon. So you fire the M14, you do, you know, you're firing this weapon every single day. And then you come up to Friday, you're going to qualify, qualification day, the next morning. So you had two weeks on the rifle range. And the, the last Friday is when you qualify. You can either go UNK, UNK, marksman, sharpshooter, or expert. And the night before, we're in our barracks, and the drone instructors are walking up and down the squad bay, and they're playing a cassette, a tape of a Marine crying, crying for his mother. He had wounded in Vietnam, and he's laying out in the field, and you can hear the pop, 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 pop of, you know, of automatic weapons going up. Pop, 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 pop. And this kid is just crying for his mother, just over and over again, just sobbing and crying. And a, a dying Marine, and he's, they're walking up and down the squad bay, and we're listening to this, and the DIs are saying, listen to him, listen to him. I don't want any of you crying for your mother. I want you to make the enemy cry for their mothers. And I'm not, my thinking to myself, oh my God, the psychological effect of that was so, it was so insane, you know? Yeah. It was brilliant on one hand and barbaric on the other hand, you know? Yeah. I mean, think about it. You're listening to this Marine crying for his mother. So the next morning is Friday morning and you know, we all were like, can you believe that? What, what they did last night? So, but we're kind of like, all, everyone's thinking about it, thinking that was real, you know? Now, I look down on a bench, there's a meatball sub, a steaming meatball sub on the soles of my children, Chase. A meatball sub. It belongs to a rifle coach, a corporal. There's a sub standing there, and I, I'm, it's like wafting, and I, I told you how hungry I was in Paris Island. So I'm smelling the sub, and then a voice behind me, Jesus Christ, Jimmy, do you want that sub? And it's Gunny Maldowney. He's there on qualification day, and I turn around, and I'm like, no, sir. He goes, bullshit, Jimmy, your eyes are bugging out of your head. You want that sub? I'm like, no, sir. No, sir. He goes, bullshit, Jimmy. And he grabs the sub and pulls it up and locks it in his arm and says, Jimmy, you shoot expert, and this sub is yours. This is yours today. You shoot expert. And I'm looking around, and like everybody's looking at me. And the, the poor rifle coach, he's a corporal, but he's like, you know, Gunny Maldani outranks him by three or four stripes, you know. He's like, that's my sub. He goes, shit down. This is my sub now. You know, Jimmy, you shoot expert, and this is yours. <laughs> well, I get on the 100-yard line, and you're standing up, mm-hmm. and you're shooting down at the targets, and they're down in the pits, and they... You know, they hit the, you hit the target and they, they put up a, a, if it's, the target's black, the bullseyes, they put up a white bullseye, you know, bullseye. So I'm squeezing them up. Boom. 
I'm hitting bullseye after bullseye, going back to the 200-yard line in the kneeling position. Boom, bullseye, bullseye, 300 yards in the sitting position, rocking back. I'm in the zone. We talked about the zone in music. I'm in the zone with the M14. And then the 500-yard line. I go back to the 500-yard line, and I'm, you know, squeezing off round after round, and there's a buzz across the rifle range. Some private from platoon 2030 is shooting the eyes off these targets, you know. And it's like, well, I knew at that point that I shot, ex- that I was in the expert zone. I had to have been because it was just bullseye after bullseye. I was in the freaking zone. And so I st- at the end, I fired the last round and everybody's like standing around me. My DIs are all happy and gunning mouth down. He hands me, Jimmy, you didn't just shoot expert. You outshot everybody in the platoon, the company and the battalion, the entire regiment. I wolfed that sub down before anybody could change their mind, before I woke up from this nightmare. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, this is unreal. And I got to eat that sub. I wolfed it down. And everybody's so happy. Everyone's like happy. My platoon's happy. My DIs are happy. Ghani Maldani. I'm happy. And then we go three days later. We're in front of our, we're back on the, the regular part of the uh, base and we're finding out our MOSs, the military occupation. Mm-hmm. The DIs are walking down the squad bay. Abbott, 0311. 0311 is infantry. Grunt. Okay. You know? You'll be dead in a day. You, you know, Brown, 0311. You're so, you can't shoot this shit. You'll be, you'll be killed when you're walking off the goddamn plane. And then going down to everybody. It's just kind of like one thing after another. And they're getting up to me and I'm standing in front of my rack. Fatello. I'm standing there like... Everybody's a grunt or a machine gunner. They're all, 0311 is grunt and 0331 is machine gunner. So everyone's either a grunt or a machine gunner. And they're coming up to me and they stop in front of me. Fatello! And I'm standing there like, yeah, what's, I know mine is not 0311 or 0331 because I'm a combat artist. It must be something really elaborate, you know, a different number sequence. Mm. 0311, but you're a good shot. You may actually live three weeks. And I stood, I stepped out, Chase. And I said, no, there's a mistake. There's a mistake. And they're like, slapping me, literally slapping me. You stupid ass. Shooting as good as you could. We don't want your goddamn drawing pictures when you can shoot like that. So the whole, t- the, my first like weeks in Vietnam, I was like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm, spo- I'm not supposed to be, I'm supposed to be drawing pictures. Uh-huh. The only pictures I ever drew were on people's helmets, you know. Mm-hmm. I would draw girls and hot rods and anyway, so that's how I ended up being a grunt. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's imagine crazy. that. Yeah. Um. Uh, how long were? So how long are we over in Vietnam for? A year. One year. Okay. Yep. And why? Why is? It, in the Marines, why is there this like really strong sense of brotherhood that maybe arguably doesn't exist as much um, in some other branches of the military? You know, there's something about the Marines. It's like a cult. You know, it's like this. It's this strange allure. The whole Marines, that they, the way they project themselves, the way they hold themselves, the few, the proud, the Marines. There's something about the core. That once you become a part of it, it's like this brotherhood. I mean, it's like a fraternity of sorts, you know. And I don't know, uh, it, but it's real. I'm like, I'm one of them. 
Mm-hmm. I'm a cult member. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for life. They tell you, I mean, you ask any, any other branch of the service, walk up, if you meet someone that's in the Army or Air Force, Navy, say, ask them, when's the, when's the birthday? When's the Army's birthday? When's the Navy birthday or the Air Force? They'll look at you like, uh, I don't know. You ask any Marine, when's the Marine Corps birthday? 10 November, 1775. It is drilled into your head. You are, from the very beginning, they strip you down and make you part of that, that, you know, fraternity. Mm-hmm. You know the history of the Corps. You know the, the, the greatest Marines that ever walked the planet, you know. Every night when we went to bed at, at, in, uh, Paris Island, you know, they'd tell us to, you know, prepare to mount. You'd be standing in front of your rack. Do it. You jump in, Marine Corps, and then we'd and they'd say, "Good night, maggots," and and we'd and we'd say, "Good night, Chesty, wherever you are." Chesty Polo was the most decorated Marine in the history of the Marine Corps. So they would, the DIs would say, "Good night, maggots," and we'd say, "Good night, Chesty, wherever you are." <laughs> it's just like this crazy. And to this day, I still attend every Marine Corps birthday here in Hampton. All the Marines and the local Seacoast Marines. We all get together and toast those that have, have gone on and talk about the Corps. And, you know, if it wasn't for the Marine Corps, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's true. You know, it, it's true with all the other branches as well. I mean, but the Marines played a major role in, in getting to that point. You yeah. Know? They have since day one and they will going forward, you know, wherever they end up, you know, fighting. But there will always be that part of me, that I'm part of that. I earned that title. Mm-hmm. I'm part of that brotherhood, you know. And so when I hear of a Marine dying or Marines killed here, and that it's like, you know, when the Marines were killed in Beirut, I went surfing that day, and I, I sobbed like a baby in the water. I went surfing, and I was just crying, sobbing. And I, and I didn't cry after Vietnam, but it must have dissolved that pent up. October 23rd, 1983, Marine barracks in Vietnam and uh, Beirut. Iranian terrorist goes in, boom, sets it up. Over 283 Marines killed. The single loss of life since Iwo Jima. Single loss of life in Marine Corps history since Iwo Jima. We lost over 6,000 Marines on Iwo Jima. 6,000. From February, 20th, February 19th to March 23rd, something like that. Over a month, 6,000 Marines dead. Mm-hmm. 20,000 wounded. 26 Medal of Honors. <laughs> That's a... That's a fighting force, man, that you don't want to cross. Yeah. You know, you know, first to fight, you know. Yeah, it seems like it's a combination of kind of all the history and the fact that this is kind of instilled in you yeah. from, from training, really. It's um, kind of it's, pride. The, you know, they, they have all these mottos, you know, the change is forever. It is. It stays with you. Yeah. And... You mentioned how hard it was for you to come back to kind of, I guess, the the real world, um, like air quotes, um, when you came back from Vietnam. But I guess more specifically, was it hard for you to find 
um, a great kind of like work-related purpose after having done kind of one of the most purpose-filled jobs like you can do in, in serving your country in the military? You know, my there was a time in my life that I thought that I would go in the Marine Corps and then I would come back and be a firefighter or a state cop, but music and surfing were stronger, way stronger. And so when I got back, I was torn between that world and this world, you know, the the military, firefighters, you know, police, you know, going that route. But the war just turned me, you know. And I, I we had a saying when we were in Vietnam, we called the United States the world. Everybody called it the world. When you're going back to the world, man, I'm short, man. I'm going, I'm going next week. You're going back to the world. We're going to be back in the world because Vietnam was Vietnam and the States was the world. It was like these two different planets, you know. I, I, it was surfing that saved me. So whatever jobs I did and, you know, starting my own business or anything was, you know, I guess it's the combination of everything that I did in the Marine Corps and the surfing and music and all that stuff kind of just found this happy medium somewhere, you know. I started my own business. I mean, I looked at life differently. You can't not go to war and not be changed by it. It's, that's something that, you know, I think about it every day. I don't dwell on it, but I remember certain things. I remember, you know, when I hear, you know, if things are tough, you know, you're facing a tough problem. Dude, I faced tougher problems than this. Mm. Way tougher, you know. You know, we've got a, we have a deadline to do, you know, and work. You know, we need to get to this. You know, I can't do it. You can't do it. That's bullshit. You know, maybe I was a little hard on the kids growing up, you know, on certain things, you know, that Marine Corps mentality. But in, at the end of the day, it, it all, you know, worked out. It all, you know, became the reality of what someone was asking you to do, whether it was school or work related. You know, you could overcome this. You can do this. You do it as a team, you know. You know, when I coach youth sports, you know, same thing, the same kind of mindset, you know, that you mm-hmm. can do this. You know, we can do this as a, can't do it alone, you know, but you, that whole Marine, we do it as a team here. We can get this done. So there was a lot that came out of that work wise, being a parent, being a, you know, coach. <laughs> I may be a little hard on my friends at times, but. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it sounds like surfing and music were just kind of um, much, I guess, more powerful pulls for you than kind oh, yeah. of the firefighter and cop group. Yeah, I, I just couldn't, you know, I, I knew I wanted... The, the other thing, too, is I, I missed out on so much. You know, the time I spent in the Marine Corps, I was, while I was doing all that, my friends were doing all this. Everybody was surfing and partying and doing this. And meanwhile, I'm like in this whole other world, you know. Mm-hmm. So when I came back, I wanted to catch up, you know. And catching up didn't mean me, you know. My son always says, Dad, you would have been a terrible cop, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been awful. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't know. I said, I'd be failing. You'd be, in, you'd be out of control. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and it's and I'm sure it's all in it's all his, his humor, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, the music and the and and surfing was just way way stronger, you know. Yeah. So I'm I'm in this happy, you know, medium. I've got the left side of me and the right side of me, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so I can see both sides clearly and understand it both, you know. Mm-hmm. I can look into the conservatives and say I I get what you're saying, and then I can look to the left. And say, I understand what you're saying too. I get this. Right. Which is why I'm an undeclared, you know, I'm undeclared in the political world. Mm-hmm. I no longer drink from the well of either party. I drink from the well of truth. I'm a strong <laughs> independent. Mm-hmm. The truth is what I seek. Mm, right. Out of everything you've done in your life or career, you know, serving in Vietnam War, Surfing, performing in bands, writing. Which do you feel comes or came most naturally to you, to you? Honestly, being a husband, a father, and a grandfather. That, to me, is the most natural. That, And I, I, I attest it all to my own parents and watch what they did. You know, they were married. My parents were married for 50 years when my dad died. You know, and he took... Great pleasure out of being a father. I, I saw that. I recognized that. My mother, you know, uh, being a grandfather. So I knew that I, I was going to find a woman and marry a woman that was going to be for the rest of my life. And I was going to raise a family and then have grandchildren and, you know, right off into the sunset, you know. So that to me, being a good husband, a faithful, loving husband being a good father, an understanding, loving father, and being a wonderful, over-loving, over-whelmingly you know, loving grandfather mm-hmm. is what comes natural to me more than anything. Interesting. That's great. And how many kids do you have? I have three kids and three grandkids. And I expect that, will, that number will grow once, you know, that's only one. My, my oldest daughter is married. My youngest daughter is getting married this summer. And I'm sure they'll have kids and at some point, Max, you know, but that's to me what's the most important thing mm-hmm. of all that. Yeah, yeah. Being a good husband and father. Mm-hmm. Right. And grandfather. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure we could go on and on, but I think um, we can wrap this up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You got more. You got more than enough material. Yeah, for sure. No, this has been great. Thanks. Uh, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Mm. Um, where can people go if they want to check out your blog and what you got going on with um, movies and music and so on? Uh, Ralph's Pick. R A L P H S P I C dot com. Ralph's Pick dot com. And from there, you can go to Surf or You Die, Memory Lane Movies, all my all my other businesses. Atlantic is my main business. The advertising design, but so but Ralph's pick has all that there. So every Sunday night, I I post it. I post, I spew forth the venom, and post the beautiful photos, and welcome the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Great, uh, yeah, and um, everyone definitely go check that out. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram at Chase Rosa Four for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Um, Thanks, everyone, who's listening, and see you next time.